0: Thank you for joining me once again in the Well-Read Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Stanley, and today we're going to enjoy a break from any particular series. And I've deliberated about whether this should have come first, since it's a formative episode that sort of shares our philosophy of evangelism and and gets a little deeper into why we believe that Christianity is something valuable. And it's not just about the arguments and the truth, it's also about beauty. But before we get started... I uh, want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, leave a review on iTunes, visit our social media accounts, go to our website, wildreadchristian.com, uh, explore our blog, find all the information you could ever want, as well as the description and summary of each episode. And uh, you'll even find a favorite quote or maybe other little goodie on our website uh, under the specific episodes that you would want to look for a special goodie for. That was a confusing way to say it, but I got the point across. Okay, well, um, again, we're going to have a little bit of a unique episode here on the well Christian Podcast. Normally, we do entire series of episodes on one particular book, whether it be something notable from literature or philosophy or what have you. But in between series, I want to do these standalone episodes. Sometimes we'll analyze an argument for or against Christianity. Other times we'll talk about a controversial or critical passage of Scripture. Uh, Perhaps we'll talk about any particular idea in depth in an abstract way, or sometimes we'll discuss a poem or short story, though. And this week, we're going to look at a poem, but also an idea in kind of an abstract, so it's kind of a unique little bit of both. Really, what I want to talk about is Well-Read Christian's passion to bring beauty into conversations that matter. Because in my experience, and I'm sure in yours also, if you've uh, spent any amount of time on the Internet... Say, a YouTube comment section or a Facebook page, you'll notice that debates about the existence of God or Christianity or religion in general can just be downright ugly. There's sloppy thinking, the conversation devolves into personal attacks, emotions run high, insults are thrown as if that had any bearing on the ideas I mean it's no wonder that American culture has adopted the rule that you really can't talk about politics or religion but then, of course, whenever we do talk about politics or religion, we can't do it. I mean, like I said, it's no wonder. We're literally not allowed to. You'll be shamed at best or punished for it at worst, depending on the context, if you talk about politics or religion. And therefore, we don't know how to talk about politics or religion. We're dramatically and intensely uneducated and ignorant, and we don't listen to one another. We talk past one another. We, we really never listen to one another. And as rage, outrage culture ramps up and tribalism gets worse and worse in our country, it's beginning to be acceptable to express political opinions, either in family situations or work situations, but only if you hold the orthodox view of whatever group that you're associated with. As soon as it gets out that maybe you're not going to toe the exact political line, then all of a sudden it's, well, we really shouldn't be talking about this anyway. You know, suddenly we clamp the conversation right back down. And And I've seen both political and religious debates that are just ugly like this, where the tribalism is so deep that the two debate people can't even listen to one another. They just talk right past one another. It becomes a giant ploy for the audience's approval because there's no respect. Moderators can't control it. It just, it gets bad. It's hardly worth watching. It's basically the modern news cycle. It's just a, it's a sad attempt at an exchange for ideas. And obviously, it goes without saying that our college campuses have completely devolved into a place where political or religious conversation just cannot survive or thrive. Um, It it really is um, sad. And I think that this is all a mistake. Conversations that matter can be deeply engaging, and they're important. And there's simply no reason to revert to that tribalism and the anger and the rage. And I sincerely believe That we should all be capable of having conversations that push us. They should push us mentally and emotionally and spiritually as well as intellectually. We should always be crossing the horizon of our next development, our next big idea. Otherwise, we're stagnant and boring. I think we always need to be moving and growing. We need to practice the heat of a conversation sometimes. I think it makes us stronger and smarter. And more wise and virtuous. I mean, especially if you can do it with patience and grace and sincerity and intellectual honesty and all the rest. It, it makes you a better person. So a part of what we're trying to do here at the Well-Read Christian is practice. I give my ideas and you respond. And sometimes I don't get to hear your response. I mean, it is a podcast after all. But we're working on an, on an effective comment system, both on the website and our podcasts are available on YouTube, which obviously gives a wider reach and uh, allows for comments and and conversation and that kind of a thing. I'd also like to set up a reoccurring, perhaps monthly, episode where it's just a conversation between me and a, and a listener. And if you're interested in that, you can use our contact page on the website. I'd love to have interesting conversations about anything within... The categories that you normally hear on the podcast, literature, philosophy, Christianity. And that's, that goes for whether you're a Christian or a non-believer. It doesn't really matter. And of course, if you'd prefer that it, our conversation doesn't get broadcasted, that's fine too. It's just, it's worth it to hear from you. It's, a, it's the exchange of ideas. It's the conversation that I'm so passionate about. So anyway, I'd like to say that the reason, or at least a reason, that conversations about religion and philosophy can get so heated and aggravating Is because the conversations have no beauty. It's always, here is this argument, look at this irrefutable evidence, and so you have to be absolutely stupid to not see this as I see it because look at this. And I think Christians can be guilty of this as well. I mean, our books are things like Evidence that demands a verdict, or I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, or The Case for Christ, and and make no mistake, I think all of those books are great. I'm, I'm a huge fan, and the work that those authors are doing is important. We need to have the good ideas out there. It is helpful because it it eliminates that stigma, or at least it gives the possibility for people who are actually interested in the ideas to rise up and read the ideas. But still, because in the public sphere, there's this idea that if you're a Christian, then you're pretty much stupid, and you're a sheep, and you haven't thought for yourself. When Christians who do take the intellectual side of their faith seriously, when they, when they come to the table in order to have a conversation, we come defensively. We come with this rigorous and accusatory tone rather than a beautiful one. I, I think that's especially true of amateur apologists. Our approach is basically, well, this is the fact, and if you don't agree, then you just don't believe the facts. And John 3.19 tells us why you don't believe in the facts, because you're a sinner, and if you don't believe, you're going to hell, and that's your choice. But what I would like to do is introduce some elements of the conversation that are self-assured, are more confident, are more, look, let's just, here's my perspective, I want to hear your perspective, and I want to interact with your perspective, and I want you to interact with my perspective. And again, I just want to say that we have good apologists who are defending the ideas. People like William Lane Craig and Frank Turek and, and all, all kinds of people. But what I do also see is that the lack from the Christian side and really from all sides is a mode of communication that is beautiful and attractive. Is a mode that says, hey, let's just have a conversation. I mean, after all, if as Christians we believe that God came down to earth to rescue us from the the evil inside of us so that we could be reunited to him, and, and that's such a beautiful story, such a captivating message. But sometimes we forget about that, and we have to remember that the beauty of Christ and of Christianity and of the teachings that Jesus gave us is enough to draw people. I mean, I don't want to have a Sunday school... Christianity or, and and nor do I want to debate against a God's not dead type atheism. I want to spark the imagination in the conversation so that when we talk about things like this, we can capture the same ideas through literature and poetry in a way that feels substantive and beautiful and interesting. Because if a conversation about God feels wooden, you're not really talking about God. And if it feels nauseating, you're probably not thinking about God like you should. I mean, again, if God is the being that has invented laughter and butterflies and squirrels and the northern lights, we shouldn't be asking how many angels can dance on the pin of a needle when life-changing truths are around the corner. So if we're talking about a God who has created the universe and who invented the ratio between the smaller excuse me the stronger and weaker nuclear force we're talking about something that's huge and important and beautiful so christians shouldn't try to defend christianity as if it stands or falls on their shoulders and atheists shouldn't attack christians or or defend their atheism you know against an onslaught of, well, you're just a sinner who needs to submit and yada yada, whatever else. We should be able to have a conversation that's meaningful and substantive. And one more thing I'd like to say on this topic. If you believe that God is actually behind the whole operation, sustaining and growing his church underneath all of the religious racket, we really should be able to come into conversations with people who we disagree with with a very gracious tone, knowing that really God is behind all of it in the first place. It's not that the universe rides on our shoulders in convincing this one person of some trivial fact that they're not going to accept because they don't like you. So that's the goal. The goal for me is to approach these conversations in a meaningful and beautiful way so that they're worth having even if nobody changes their minds. Okay. So now on to the poem. I wouldn't be surprised if this is the first time some of you have seriously read a poem. It's not something that's super common or regular anymore. It um, kind of gives off the vibe of a very girly man, if you're a dude who's reading poetry. And oftentimes the poetry that we are exposed to is really not that good, or it's just not our, it's just not our thing. And so what I would like to do is only expose you to poetry that I'm confident that you'll like. And especially if you're a Christian, you should like this poem, I think. And if you're not a Christian, hopefully you'll at least be able to appreciate the artistic quality of it, as well as the point that I'm trying to make with it. So hopefully you'll enjoy what you hear. Because poetry can be so beautiful that you can't even believe it. The capacity to say a lot in a little with wonder and mystery and beauty is is truly astonishing. So I'm going to put a link to the poem in the description, and you might do well to read along with me or otherwise listen very closely. There are at least two interpretations of this poem, and one is that it's a love poem about a woman, and the other is that it's a love poem to Jesus Christ, basically, that it's about the beauty of Christ, and it's a poem about being in love with God, so to speak. And I'm kind of torn about which interpretation is the one that the author actually intended. I think there's a decent case to be made for either way, either side. But today I'm going to use the spiritualized interpretation because it suits my purpose. So I'm going to read the poem and then I'll go over some of the lines. Here we go. The Bait by John Donne. Come live with me and be my love. And we will some new pleasures prove, Of golden sands and crystal brooks, With silken lines and silver hooks. There will the river whispering run, Warmed by thy eyes more than the sun, And there the enamoured fish will stay, Begging themselves they may betray. When thou wilt swim in that live bath, Each fish, which every channel hath, Will amorously to thee swim, gladder to catch thee than thou him. If thou, to be so seen, beest loath, by sun or moon, thou darknest both, and if myself have leave to see, I need not their light having thee. Let others freeze with angling reeds, and cut their legs with shells and weeds, or treacherously poor fish beset with strangling snare or wind we net. Let coarse, bold hands from slimy nest the bedded fish in banks outrest, or curious traders sleeve silk flies, bewitch poor fishes' wandering eyes. For thee thou needst no such deceit, for thou thyself art thine own bait. That fish that is not catched thereby, alas, is wiser far than I. All right. So I imagine I might be stretching some listeners, so please try to bear with me. I'd like to talk about the poem a little bit and break it down line by line, and I think if I do that in a way that makes you see kind of the inner workings of it, you might end up enjoying it more than you could have thought that you would have. Could have thought that you would have? More than you could have thought that you would have. So the first stanza, come live with me and be my love, and we will some new pleasures prove. Of golden sands and crystal brooks with silken lines and silver hooks. So, first of all, line one and two is a direct allusion to a poem written by Christopher Marlowe, a very influential English poet and playwright, actually a contemporary of William Shakespeare, so he doesn't get much attention in comparison. But Marlowe wrote a poem from the perspective of a shepherd boy to a woman, and in the poem he confesses his love for her. And he says how great their lives could be if she would only accept his proposal and they would live together and be happily ever after. The poem is called A Passionate Shepherd to His Love. And it's a very, it was very popular and still is, and an very powerful, influential, beautiful, witty expression of what it feels like to experience the magic of falling in love and, and having a crush and the, and the enchanting grip that it can have on us. And we all wish that we could express our feelings like Marlowe does. And the opening lines are, Come live with me and be my love, and we will all the pleasures prove. And then he goes on to describe kind of what those pleasures could be. And he would make her beautiful little necklaces, and they would explore prairies together. And it's, it's really a beautiful poem. I'm sure that we'll talk about it at some point in the podcast. But this is what's so great about what's often called the great conversation. One poet will come out with a beautiful expression of art that makes everyone go, wow, that's really great. And it inspires other poets and artists and thinkers and authors to contribute to it or modify it or respond to it or something. And so Christopher Marlowe makes a beautiful statement about uh, an optimistic young shepherd boy who puts himself out there and tries to get the girl of his dreams, very optimistic, trying to woo her with all of his lofty words. But then another poet who uh, wrote a few years after Marlowe, his name was Sir Walter Willet writes a poem called "The Nymph's Reply to the Shepherd." And in it he basically has the opposite expression. It's. It's a poem about a pessimism towards romance. It has lines that talk about how romance fades and that passion that burns can disappear over time and people get old and oftentimes there's deceit that is involved in love or perhaps even self-deceit and heartbreak is often just around the corner and that sort of a thing. And so really. Weaves the same line throughout his poem. He's, in, in his poem, I, th- I believe it opens If all the world and love were young, and truth in every shepherd's tongue, these pretty pleasures might me move to live with thee and be thy love. And so, the reason why I'm telling you all of this is because it's important to note that John Donne opens up his poem with these very same lines Come live with me and be my love, and we will some new pleasures prove. So it's not exactly the same. Instead of, we will all the pleasures prove, he says, we will some new pleasures prove. And so to me, this is an immediate hint that something's going on. There's a strong illusion, direct illusion. But in my opinion, Dunn is not just talking about just another romance poem. He's not just writing another contribution to the love trilogy, you could call it. For me when he says, and we will some new pleasures prove, he's talking about a deeper pleasure. He's talking about something that you can't just get from a girl. And then besides that, just that first stanza takes a sharp cut of golden sands and crystal brooks with silken lines and silver hooks. So with lines and hooks, we're talking about fishing. The only way this would make sense on my interpretation is to think of Jesus as the fisher of men. Jesus is going to go fishing, and he's going to find that he doesn't need bait, because he is already the most attractive and winsome thing compared to whatever else is on the market. So here comes stanza two. There will the river whispering run, warmed by thy eyes more than the sun. And there the enamored fish will stay, begging themselves they may betray. So here's another indication that we're not talking about just some girl. Jesus is someone who warms the river, the cold running river with just his eyes. And there the enamored fish will stay begging themselves that they may betray. So the idea is that the fish whom Jesus is looking for are the kind of people who respond to him in a positive way. They're, they're looking for reasons to believe in him. They're they're already seeing the beauty in the way that he interacts with people, in the way that he talks, in the way that he conducts himself, and they are attracted to it. So here comes stanza three. When thou wilt swim in that live bath, each fish which every channel hath will amorously to thee swim, gladder to catch thee than thou him. So here we have a description, in my opinion, of all of the channels of life which Jesus attracts people to. Notice that Christianity is the most culturally diverse and ethnically diverse religion in the world. I mean, there is no other religion that has as many diverse followers. And I think that this is what Dunn is perhaps referring to here when he says each fish Which every channel hath will amorously to thee swim, gladder to catch thee than thou him. Jesus is a kind of person where people look for him. The Christian message is a message that fits with our deepest intuitions. Human beings universally have a self consciousness problem. We know that we're not all that we could be, and we know that. We ought to hold higher expectations of ourselves and we ought to be better people. We ought to do better, that we could contribute so much more, that we're meant for a higher purpose. All of these things are things that Christ gives us. And He tells us, Come, ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you the grace that you need and the forgiveness that you need and the love and the affirmation and the confidence to have a reunited relationship with God. Stanza five, I think. Let others freeze with angling reeds and cut their legs with shells and weeds or treacherously poor fish beset with strangling snare or windowy net. So what Dunn is saying here is let other people manipulate and barter and coerce and lie to get them into their cult. Let other people work so hard and cut their legs with shells and weeds in order to win themselves followers. Stanza 6. Let coarse bold hands with slimy nest, the bedded fish and banks outrest, or curious traders sleeve silk flies, bewitch poor fishes wandering eyes. Some religions or ideologies rely pretty heavily on schemes in order to persuade. And I think you'll know what I'm talking about. The radical leftism that has emerged and has acquired many followers, I think gets those followers, in at least some part, by threatening to call you a name, ending in ist, or ick, or ism. They'll threaten to call you a name if you don't bend the knee. The religion of intersectionality and who is oppressing who it has an appeal to make you a victim and it has the threat of branding you as an oppressor if you don't assimilate if you're not woke enough mormonism uh, uses some pretty alluring baits too with the promise of becoming your own god if you perform enough good deeds and become a truly holy person If you rise high enough in the ranks, you will transcend this world in death and become a god yourself to populate your own universe. That's pretty appealing. Of course, we do also know that radical Islam has ideas of virgins awaiting you in heaven if you perform acts of violence in the name of Allah. Well, what about Christianity? What's Christianity's bait? What's our lure? Well, our lure is basically the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's it. You get to be close with him. His grace, his mercy, his love, his justice, just his very nature. That's the appeal. One of my favorite scenes from the Gospel of John is the Upper Room Discourse when Jesus is telling his disciples all kinds of important things that they need to remember even when he's gone and the disciples just aren't getting it they keep asking him questions clearly indicating that they're not tracking with him and at one point jesus says no it's it's good that i go because i'm going to go prepare a place for you in heaven and when i go prepare a place i'll come to you myself that you may know where i'm going and thomas says well how do we know the way to get there if we don't know where you're going and jesus says well i am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip says, Lord, just show us the Father, and that is enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Philip goes, well, Jesus, okay, all this stuff sounds great, but just just show us who God is and we'll be happy. We don't, we don't need all this other stuff. Just show me God. And Jesus says, don't you recognize me, Philip? How, how long have I been with you and you don't see me? You don't recognize me. And they kind of have this light bulb moment where they're like, oh my gosh, that's the appeal of Christianity. The appeal of Christianity isn't to go to heaven and see grandma. It isn't to, you know, live forever and dance in a theme park for all eternity. It isn't the pearly gates and the singing and the music, you know. Well, if that's the appeal, you've thought about this, you'd be bored of that in 20 minutes. The appeal of Christianity is the person of Jesus. It's, hey, if you're a Christian, you'll know God. The guy who invented butterflies and laughing babies and the guy who invented romance and sex and like the being, the mind behind the universe, flowers, music, you name it. You'll know him personally. You'll have a relationship with him, your creator. That's the appeal of Christianity. That's the lure. It's not virgins, or you'll be your own God. There's no appeal to pride or anything else. Jesus doesn't need such tricks because he is his own bait. So here's the last stanza. For thee thou needest no such deceit, for thou thyself art thine own bait. That fish that is not catched thereby Alas, is wiser far than I. So that's pretty self-explanatory. The idea here is that anyone who sees Jesus and isn't attracted to him and doesn't want to be caught by him, well, to carry the analogy through, that's a much smarter fish than I because that looks like some tempting bait. Jesus is so attractive and beautiful. How could you not be caught up in Christianity? In following him and becoming a disciple and trying to learn more about who this person is and what their teachings are and why those teachings are good and pure and just and and why following them would make your life infinitely better and and how seeing Christ as the gateway to your reconciliation with God would be so powerful and life-changing. You could live guilt-free. You could know that God loves you. You don't have to fear the wrath of God, which is just because of your evil nature and your evil actions and your evil thoughts. I'm quoting John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So if you're not attracted to that, Christianity has no appeal for you. And if you're the kind of person who is interested in Christianity, it's very important for you to know the person of Christ is the appeal, even 2,000 years later. Well, there's one last thing that I would like to say before I let you go. And that's that we've talked a lot about atheism and secularism on the podcast. And we compare and contrast that view with the Christian view. And this is important because apologetics, which is the defense of Christianity, has tension with the culture at hand. And that's because our culture believes that if you are a Christian, then you kind of believe in a silly worldview. It's kind of hard to take you seriously. You kind of appear stupid. Like you can't think for yourself or that you're brainwashed or that you just believe in something because your parents told you to believe it and you just have never really grown out of it or something like that. And so whenever I'm having a conversation with someone and it it appears that our value system might be similar, a conversation about, well, are you a Christian? Oftentimes is more like a mouse poking their nose out of a hole. The response I sometimes get is, well, well yeah, I'm a Christian, and, and well, I was raised a Christian, and, well, I don't go to church. I mean, I do. I do go to church, and, like, there's so much awkwardness around it, and I guarantee you that non-believers have this experience routinely with people who consider themselves Christians. And I would just like to say there's no reason to be afraid of people, and there's no reason to be ashamed of your Christianity. The truth is, is whether you're a secular person and you're listening to this podcast, the truth is, is that Christians, just like any other people, are afraid and vulnerable and they don't want to be exposed to ridicule or, or disappointing people that they've just met or, or even people that they really care the opinions of and, and they've known them for a while. And on the same token, if you're a Christian and you're listening to this podcast, I want to encourage you, take pride in your beliefs. Know what you believe and why you believe it and be comfortable with it. The truth is is that that is so much more winsome. People will respect you if they feel like you are self-confident. Besides, when you're talking to someone, anyone, no matter who it is, you'll find that they've got all kinds of beliefs that seem silly or irrational or perhaps they believe it just because their parents told them that they should or, or that that's the culture they were brought up in or, or maybe they've been brainwashed or whatever the case may be. All kinds of people believe in aliens or ghosts or horoscopes or a little bit of Buddhism or some new age thrown in there. And they don't have any good reasons to believe that, but they just do. Maybe because they haven't thought about it critically or the people around them have always believed it or they had a couple of experiences that made them think, oh my goodness, and, you know, and so now they've, they've always believed it since then. And even though the atheism and secularism are on the rise as the religious nuns, so to speak, continue to be influential in the public discourse, the truth is is that those people are still close to five to six to maybe seven percent of the population. You don't have to be afraid of people coming in and bashing your views. that happens very, very, very rarely, and the truth is is that when or if it does happen, it reflects far more about the person who's bashing you than it does about you. If you carry yourself with confidence, knowing in whom and in what you believe and in the beauty and the winsomeness of it, then you have nothing to be ashamed of. So kind of a challenging episode today, having to bounce back and forth between the poem and commentary and the ideas. I hope that the beauty of the poem shines forth, and I'd like to read it one more time now that I've kind of explained each of the components and you've been kind of marinating in it a little bit, and I think one last read-through should be good for you to soak in all of the beauty that there is here in this poem, and, and we can call it a day. The Bait by John Donne. Come live with me and be my love, and we will some new pleasures prove of golden sands and crystal brooks with silken lines and silver hooks. There will the river whispering run, warmed by thy eyes more than the sun. And there the enamored fish will stay, begging themselves they may betray. When thou wilt swim in that live bath, each fish, which every channel hath, will amorously to thee swim, gladder to catch thee than thou him. If thou, to be so seen, beest loath by sun or moon, thou darkness both, and if myself have leave to see, I need not their light having thee. Let others freeze with angling reeds and cut their legs with shells and weeds, or treacherously poor fish beset with strangling snare or windowy net. Let coarse bold hands from slimy nest, the bedded fish and banks outrest, or curious traders sleeve silk flies, Bewitch poor fish's wandering eyes. For thee, thou needest no such deceit. For thou thyself art thine own bait. That fish, which is not catched thereby, Alas, is wiser far than I.